This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. You know, one thing I realized over the years in, in my role at both in my practice and DHP and other societies is getting anything across takes a lot of effort. You know, to change things takes a ton of effort and you're going to have missteps, you're going to have failures, you're going to have times where like things don't go the way you expect them to go, but you have to keep at it if you believe in something. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nadim Baig of Allied Digestive Health in New Jersey. We're recording live at Digestive Disease Week in beautiful San Diego, California. Dr. Bagg received his medical degree from Jefferson Medical College and did his residency at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. He did his gastroenterology fellowship at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Dr. Bagg is Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Allied Digestive Health and is active in our national GI societies including serving on the AGA PAC Board of Advisors. Dr. Begg is Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Allied Digestive Health and is active in our national GI societies, including serving on the AGA PAC Board of Advisors and as Chair of Communications for the Digestive Health Physician Associations. Dr. Begg, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Thank you, Michael. It is a distinct honor and pleasure to be here, sitting in front of you especially, uh, noting all your years of experience and expertise and leadership on AGA and other societies. I just noticed you also are on the AGA Legacy Society now, which yeah. is a honor and achievement in your own right. It, it is, and you too can be a legacy member of uh, the uh, foundation. Uh, thank you. Um, so always like to start these uh, interviews with a little bit of background about how you got to where you are. Why did, you know, you went to medical school. What, what made you choose gastroenterology? Well, the medical school part was a pretty easy one because that was my father. But in GI, it's, I think it was fulfilling part of a dream, which I think thankfully did not fully realized, I think because of divine intervention. Because back in medical school, I think, I really wanted to become a surgeon and I put my heart into that but I had be honestly poor mentorship and, uh, to, to some degree and also on my own part really not doing enough investigation into really what it takes to get into sur surgical residency so thankfully I did not get into it um, and then in, when I decided to go into medicine at that point because I did have a curious mind and like the investigative part of medicine that internal medicine leads to that right nicely at that point I found that gastroenterology was a perfect marriage between the mind and the hands that's cool uh, you know you and I see eye to eye on things and I too had an interest in surgery for me though the biggest problem was in surgery I was going to have to stand on two or three steps to get to the level of the table and at, because everybody else couldn't stoop. 
So that actually was one of the reasons I decided not to go into surgery. It's very funny you mentioned that because that, that, that thought did not cross my mind when I went into <laughs> surgery. Um, and I think I would have made an anesthesiologist's life hell. Exactly. You know, by asking to lower the, keep lowering the table is to the lowest level possible. Uh, so, yeah. in, in any case, that's really what really made me get into GI. It was close to surgery, right? We, yes. were, we were doing stuff with our hands, and it is. So, and, uh, and it's quite remarkable now how much, at least on the, uh, the endoscop endoscopic side, how much it is advancing into surgery. You know, uh, to the point that, you know, nowadays in operating rooms, you'll find a gastroenterologist working with a surgeon, you know, on many upper gut <laughs> upper procedures that are complicated. You get to go into the room occasionally. So you, you go into gastroenterology, but then, you know, given all the different realms you can get into in GI and academics and industry, and what made you choose private practice? You know, I think at that point, uh, when I first came out of fellowship, I had my mind and heart actually set on being more of in a faculty position, ironically. And not so much doing research, but actually being involved in teaching, education. Uh, but at some point along that track, I was missing a, I think, a deep satisfaction um, in patient care. I really like taking care of people and making their lives better. And I was just missing that in the, uh, in the academic track that I was kind of heading myself into. So early on in my career, I transitioned to private practice and I have been loving it ever since. Well, I think you do a great job and obviously your uh, history in New Jersey is uh, well known. Um, Allied Digestive was created from five practices merging uh, several years ago. I've talked to a lot of other groups about merging practices. How long did it take you to uh, date and get married with those other five groups? And what were the biggest hurdles that you uh, encountered? Huh. You know, when I first came out of fellowship and practice, I had zero interest in the, in the I see the practice management and the business of medicine. I just wanted to focus on clinical care uh, and, and uh, you know, manage my medical practice in gastroenterology as best as I could based upon the evidence coming through you know, AGA, ECG, and other societies. But at some point in late 2000s and early 2010s, I recognized that it was increasingly challenging to practice medicine without getting an understanding of what's going on beyond our little sphere of the doctor-patient relationship uh, with you know all the regulatory changes, all the pressures from the payers, just becoming a more and more of a pain. So I said at some point we gotta do something about this. And you know, I said I think the best thing to do is to come join forces, align and ally ourselves with other like-minded practices in our region. And you know it was also seeing, seeing changes happening, I think, with your own practice and the, in the D.C. area and learning what you guys were doing and learning what others doing around the nation. Um, so this is probably the best thing to do is consolidate. So we started talking to most of other groups uh, in the area and take about 2012. Um, we actually had a conversation with another group that was also kind of falling apart the seams because 
their senior partner decided to take a risk uh, in thinking that the future of GI was in CT colonography. So he put his little practice, five-man group, invested a ton of dollars into a CT scanner. And you, see, you could see, imagine how that went. So his, four part, his other four partners just could not survive uh, and manage their practice. So they were looking for options, started talking to us, and then that it mushroomed to ha into, I call the talking with the five families. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like you know a nice little relevant terminology yeah, in New Jersey, New Jersey, <laughs> in New, Jersey New York area, uh, but in those uh, that it took about two three years of convincing some you know good minds, um, but really uh, you know having some serious conversation with people that we honestly were having a, because of our proximity to each other we're, we're sort of a, I say a rivalry, a competitive relationship so. You know, the big barrier to overcome was trust, you know. Uh, and, you know, we worked hard, had a lot of conversations, met with uh, actually your colleague, Arnold Levy, who was a really great uh, mentor and guide um, in fomenting that relationship. And then finally, in uh, January 1st of 15, Ally Justice of Health became, uh, was born. You got married. We got married. You know? um, it's very similar history. I mean, it, you know, that it takes a long time to develop that trust because you are starting out as competitors. Uh, and you have to sort of get past the fact that, you know, we're not really competing. Everybody's busy, mm -hmm. right? There's only so much work an individual can do. And you're all duplicating that back office effort. You know, you're doing it five times. And, doesn't make a lot of sense, but developing that trust, you don't have two meetings uh, of multiple groups and say at the end of two meetings that we're going to merge. Someone really nicely uh, contextualized, uh, categorized how to build trust. What are the key elements of that trust? You know, uh, one is transparency, what I think we've been good at from day one. You know, just have to open the books, show them everything where all the dollars and cents are going, so they have a sense of knowing where, you know, how the whole relationship is unfolding, not just on the financial side, but also on the cultural side, um, and in, in, in the decision-making process. You know, it's key. Uh, two is um, what's the word? Is competence. That's a hard barrier to, to raise. You know, and that's still a work in progress to some degree, I think. But I think we initially established that uh, to some degree. Um, and three is communication. And that is still a challenge we're having to this day. <laughs> and I'm sure it's happening in your sense as yeah. well. I mean, how do you get people, all, you know, in all the doctors who are invested in a relationship, how you're getting the information that we're doing on a daily basis, a month-month basis, to them, you know, so they feel they're in the know. You, you keep trying. And it's complicated because you're sending information about, about you know, local issues, you know, in uh, local finances, you're sending policy issues out, things that affect everybody, and then you're trying also to keep everybody informed about what's going on in the world, thereby your your relationship with DHPA and now with the AGA PAC. Uh, one of the things I've learned, you know, I've been in Washington, D.C. for, you know, 40 years, um, 
And I think a lot of people look at legislative activity and policy and making changes as if it's some, you know, you know, huge marble institution that you can't get inside. And in fact, uh, you find out that it's just people. There's just people in there. And I think it's not just, I think one, we, we, we both kind of touched on this, uh, is not just thinking that one meeting is going to be enough. You know, I think Thomas Edison was this, like, was, you know, success word. What New Jersey guy. New Jersey, Jersey guy, exactly. Jersey guy in my neighborhood. He, he said, like, you know, success is like 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, right? And, you know, one thing I've realized over the years in, in my role at both in my practice and DHP and other societies is getting anything across takes a lot of effort. You know, to change things takes a ton of effort. And you're going to have missteps, you're going to have failures, you're going to have times where like things don't go the way you expect them to go, but you have to keep at it if you believe in something. It's the same issue we talked about merging practices, mm -hmm. right? You, don't do, you didn't do it in one meeting. No. So you have to build trust. Same thing, you have to build trust with legislators. Yeah, and I think, you know, people, particularly on the advocacy side, what discusses, you know, they, they get frustrated because, like, these, you know, they have an issue that they really believe in strongly. You know, they they talk to keep the key people on the other side, whether it's the stakeholders in, uh, in uh, insurance companies or the CMS, legislatures are like, they're not hearing me. Uh, what am I going to do? It's got to keep, keep do it again and again and again. Just keep doing it. Mm -hmm. So, a little different. So, um, is your you know, you're a big group. Um, you get involved with uh, talking to fellows, trying to uh, recruit. Uh, are there Issues about recruiting in New Jersey. I know a lot of practices are having issues with recruiting. Um, to a degree, yes. Now I we're, we're, we 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 have felt in my own practice for years. I think I think initially we felt we felt a built lulled into complacency because maybe like you. I mean, we have a lot of fellowships um, and training programs. We're blessed to have them in our backyard. Literally. Between New York and Philadelphia, maybe like you know, twenty or uh, twenty or thirty fellowship programs in our cities. But I think, like yourself and many of the practices around the country, are facing the same challenges in getting the talent out to us. In part because there's increasing supply demand mismatch um, uh, in the number of gastroenterologists who are coming out of training and those who are close to, closer to retirement. Uh, I think, you know, I recall this, you know, back in, I think when maybe we were training, Mike, GIL ups were two years, right? Yeah. You know, and then right around my time, they made a big switcheroo, go from two years to three years, you know, and they didn't increase the number of fellowship spots at the time that much. Now, I know, I know they've grown incrementally over the decades, but still, it's a three-year printing program. So there are less fellows coming out than I think, uh, I mean, comparatively in the society than they were maybe 20, 30 years ago. Do you think the fellows coming out understand uh, what private practice means? Do they understand uh, the relationships of a big group like yours and what it means to be in a big group and how that affects their, their future? Do, and, and if they don't understand it, what do you think the AGA should do or what, what should... Uh, independent groups do to try and educate fellows? I think it's because, you know, they look at their mentors. 
you know, I think back when you were in training, or even when I was in training, I had a lot of mentors my, who were basically part of my faculty who were in private practice, you know, uh, even in my own training program. And I had a real good feel of what private practice gastroenterology was like. And I liked it, you know. And I think increasingly now, because of how medicine is, is in general folding and changing um, uh, throughout the country, you know, we're seeing more clear fault lines, you know, in terms of the, you know, do the really promote growth of the health systems. And now more and more health systems that are either academic or more non-academic tracks, these people are employed physicians for the most part. So what, and the most of the fellowship is still based out of there. So they're, only, they're not getting a sense of what prior practice gastroenterology is like out there. And I think what the, I mean, really appreciate what the AGA is doing, thanks to your leadership and along with others, is getting that, making them get a sense of, of, of providing more opportunities and they interact with people in independent private practices so they get a sense what private practice gastroenterology is like and all the benefits that actually can have for the fellows coming out of training to, and, and to advance their careers. It, it, but it also, I think it's, it, and if there's opportunity to work on this with the societies is maybe, it, and I think some people, are, are, I've seen Naresh doing this here on Gastro and other, other folks is trying to actually provide opportunities for training and education at the independent practice level. Perhaps maybe, which also can help with our supply demand mismatch um, in medicine is getting more fellowships in GI in that are being fostered through private pra private independent practices. And that's another whole other set of challenges there, yeah, which I, I think we have to meet. I agree. <laughs> I think um, it's interesting. Uh, Naresh in uh, Huron Gastro has really sort of hit upon, I think, a, a very interesting uh, concept of actually starting a fellowship within a big GI practice. And I'm sure within Ally, you have some very well-known, talented people who are probably great educators, great mentors, uh, who would love to be able to pass it on. Um, you know, is there an opportunity for a, an allied or a capital digestive care to say, hey, look, we have a lot of talent here. Maybe there's a way that we could start a fellowship. It is, it is actually on our doorsteps. I cannot believe this. Uh, I was talking to my colleagues that actually a local big hospital system, you know, that has a lot that has a lot of residents, medical students coming through it. They want to become a tertiary care system in our area. They have a lot of referring hospitals. They have a lot of referring doctors now that are captive to that health system. And they want to have more fellowships. They actually approached one of us several years ago, uh, but because I think, you know, the, we were that physicians or group was in a small practice they really felt they could not meet the demands they're right about it in managing a, a GI fellowship appropriately and but I think now in our our size and our scale I really believe we can do it and we should be doing it well I'm going to take you up on that and get a, a several of the big practices together and talk to Naresh and let's we we can create a recipe to what it takes to do a GI fellowship. I know you're interested, I'm interested. I think there are several other uh, platform groups and large groups that um, and are it's, interested. It's really, it really takes me back full circle to something that I, I really did enjoy and I kind of miss now. And that's 
teaching, uh, and that's imparting education. Because um, I think, you know, epistemologically, I think we as, you know, are really have been uh, you know, appropriately focused upon using evidence-based medicine, but there's still a role in experience and wisdom, wisdom, wisdom in imparting knowledge that you, you can't always get through, you know, studies and clinical trials as much as important as they are um, in, in, our, in, our, in our fomenting our knowledge, understanding of diseases, but it's still something to say about experience and wisdom that is, is key in a role of a mentorship in the training program. I think your ideas are great. I think we're going to meet more on this stuff. And um, uh, Dr. Begg, I want to uh, thank you for uh, joining us on Gastro Broadcast. Uh, I hope they can uh, get you back again. Maybe we can talk about uh, fellowship training uh, in the future. So really, yeah, thank well, you. Hopefully, Michael, if we are able to embark on this project, and hopefully you as well, I would love to come back and discuss how our experience has been at uh, that. You got it, Nadim. You got it. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.